very much. It's a great pleasure to be here, to meet some old friends and to meet some new friends. Um, I will not be too long. I don't want to give a long lecture uh, because I think it would be most interesting if we could discuss among ourselves and, and, uh, and confront each other's arguments and, and to fill out each other's arguments. Uh, a few words about my mandate because, uh, as I've learned in my travels, not everybody knows who the Commissioner for Human Rights is. I'm surprised by this, but not everybody knows. Um, as, as you said, it's an independent, impartial, non-judicial institution. Independent means uh, that I do not take orders from anybody, either within the Council of Europe or outside the Council of Europe. Uh, my independence is enshrined in a, in a mandate that lasts for six years that is non-renewable, which means I don't have to start lobbying myself halfway through my term. Um, impartial means I'm supposed to spend, uh, I'm supposed to treat every country in the Council of Europe on an equal basis, so I cannot spend all of my time in, in, in the Western Balkans or in Russia or Ukraine or in the UK, <coughs> but I must deal with all 47 member states and with uh, all the full spectrum of human rights issues. As you said, it's, I'm learning something new every day. I have a great team, uh, but it is, a, it is quite a challenge. Uh, and the institution is non-judicial in nature. In other words, I cannot force any government to do anything. I must persuade them. I must raise awareness. Uh, I must work to build political will, uh, political momentum. Uh, it is a non-judicial institution, but I can, I do, the one power I do have, which is quasi-judicial, I can intervene as a third party before the European Court of Human Rights. I haven't done this very often, uh, only one time so far, but I'm looking for good cases on which I can have added value. Um, and the court, but the court does serve as a point of departure for my dialogue with member states. Uh, there are some member states that are interested in best practices and other interested Others, they're solely interested in their legal obligations. So the case law of the court uh, is a very good platform for me to discuss these uh, issues with, with member states. The core of my work is <coughs> country work. Going to a, and what does this mean? Um, I identify two or three priority issues in a country that are not being dealt with by others or that are serious issues that need to be looked into. Um, we do a lot of uh, research beforehand. And then I go with a team and uh, we meet with NGOs, we meet with ministers, parliamentarians, ombudspersons, we do site visits uh, to places of interest, to detention centers, to Roma camps, to uh, hospitals, to psychiatric institutions. Um, uh, so I get very good access to, to places and people. And then we write a report with recommendations and then, I, and then the real work begins. Then the work begins with media, then the work begins with follow-up with ministers and, and deputies, and uh, sometimes we can have a, an impact, other times uh, much less so. Very much depends on the context, the timing, the professionalism of our work. Um, in some places we get a whole lot of attention, in other places I think there's been a, a silent decision in the, in the government that the best tactic is to ignore me and the work and then it will pass. Uh, but in, very often uh, what I see our job as doing is giving people hope, giving people ammunition, legal ammunition, uh, good arguments to, to push the debate forward, and uh, very often uh, we can we can we can help in that. Uh, the country visits I've done uh, visited very many countries. I travel almost every week. I often say you want to find me. The best place to book is in Frankfurt Airport Terminal One, and I'm most likely there. Uh, but. Uh, I've done 17 full country visits with reports. Uh, just yesterday, we launched a report on Ukraine. Uh, 
very soon. We'll have a report on Georgia out. Uh, and although I've done many other visits to countries to go to conferences, to give lectures, uh, to meet with deputies, uh, to go on site visits to various facilities, uh, and this is not a full country visit to the UK. That is still coming. It's not, the UK is not immediately on my agenda, although UK, the UK uh, is quite a, requires a lot of attention from the Council of Europe because the debates here on the European Convention on Human Rights, on migration, uh, on very other, various other human rights issues are quite problematic and send very bad signals to some other member states who would like to follow the UK's bad example. Uh, and so uh, the UK does require some attention uh, on the part of my office, but also on the part of the court and, and other bodies. And if you want in the discussion, we can get into that. Uh, the uh, issues of migration asylum come up relatively frequently in my country work. I have, uh, I would say the most common issues are issues pertaining to administration of justice and police violence. Uh, but right after that, I would say the next two issues are migration and asylum-related issues and issues pertaining to Roma, and very often those issues are linked. Uh, thus far, if you're interested in, in country work in which we've looked at these things, uh, I would recommend our reports on Italy, on Greece, on Austria, Finland, uh, former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, and a, a forthcoming report on Denmark. Um, but the country reports are not the only uh, place in which we look at issues pertaining to migration and asylum. I've done a number of uh, site visits, letters to ministers about situations, uh, and thematic visits. Uh, did a thematic visit on the Syrian refugee crisis to places such as Turkey, Bulgaria, Germany, Armenia, Serbia, and France. Uh, very often, we try to promote some debate in countries by writing letters and then publishing them and publishing the ministers' responses. Uh, in other places, I've gone on visits, for example, in Serbia to, to a, a refugee reception center, uh, to Armenia to a refugee reception center, um, and so forth. Uh, very often, I find myself compelled to criticize the European Union, uh, which is an odd game because the European Union and the Council of Europe very often are partners. And sometimes the European Union funds Council of Europe activities, but I find, especially in the realm of migration asylum, that very often uh, I have to criticize uh, what they are doing. Uh, the language of criminalization uh, in uh, various pieces of EU legislation, uh, the legitimacy of long-term detention of migrants uh, permitted by EU directives, the lack of transparency and accountability on the part of Frontex or the European uh, Asylum Support Office, the injustice and unsustainability of Dublin returns, and the pressures this puts on some countries, um, unsustainable pressures in, in my view, that lead to uh, many violations of human rights, and the export of bad practices to non-member states, primarily those neighboring uh, the European Union. But these states happen to be members of the Council of Europe, so I end up looking at, at the, consequ the negative consequences of EU policy uh, in neighboring countries. And this is why we put out this issue paper on the right to leave a country. Uh, it might seem a strange topic in the 21st century to talk about the right to leave a country. Uh, when we initially began to look at this, I thought this is a throwback to the, to the Soviet years when we were talking about the right of, of Jewish refuseniks to leave the country. Uh, but as it turns out, it's quite a topical issue, especially in a number of countries neighboring uh, the European Union. I was first exposed to it uh, even before I took up my mandate. I went with my predecessor 
uh, on a mission to uh, a number of countries in uh, former Yugoslavia. And we organized a round table with human rights defenders from the whole region. <coughs> and we began to talk about various hu topical human rights issues that they are dealing with. And one of them, as it turned out, was uh, the right to leave the country, that many Roma uh, had faced uh, various practices, uh, especially in former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, but also in Serbia, ethnic profiling at the border, uh, having being pulled off of planes, trains, having their passports confiscated, having their tickets uh, confiscated. Uh, so this drew our attention. I looked into it um, in some detail on a trip to uh, former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, uh, and since then in, in a bit in Serbia as well. As it turns out, the biggest political success of the governments of the region very often is receiving a visa facilitation agreement with the EU. And very often this is their only political success. And they will do anything to maintain this political sec success uh, in the face of, of various pressures. And uh, how, how does it work? It works that they, they, get the, they get the visa facilitation agreements, and then people, uh, primarily but not solely Roma, uh, leave and look for asylum in EU countries. Many of, uh, I would say the vast majority of the claims are rejected and they are returned uh, from various countries. Not all, there is a need for protection for some, at least this is what European countries, uh, various European countries have, have granted uh, asylum to a relatively small percentage of, of, of the persons, but the vast majority of their claims and applications are, are rejected. And they are sent back. And then the countries are told, if you do not stop the outflow of asylum seekers from your countries, uh, you will lose your visa facilitation agreements. And then the countries are willing to do just about anything to maintain the visa facilitation agreements. Thus, the source of, of, of these problematic practices. And uh, when I pointed this out to, to the Macedonian authorities and the authorities in Serbia. They initially tried to, to say it's not true, but then they said, yes, but we're under enormous pressure from the Commission, from EU member states, and so on and so forth. I pointed it out to the EU in Brussels, and initially they said, this is the first we hear of this. And then I find out that Commission officials have been in Western Balkan capitals and have been saying, you've got to get this under control. Uh, so they know very well. Uh, so this is an area in which the EU is complicit in very problematic practices through the pressures it puts on these countries. And to give you a scale, uh, to give you a picture of the scale of the, of the problem, in the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, uh, from 2009 to 2012, more than 7,000 people were not permitted to leave. So this is not, a, these are not individual cases. This is a much larger phenomenon. In Serbia, I think it's much less of a problem. Uh, but you do have a number of cases in domestic courts uh, challenging measures uh, to penalize people. And apparently it's, it's a, it is a problem in several other countries, but I don't have sufficient information on, on other countries. Um, the big risk, of course, is that this practice becomes entrenched and that it spreads to other neighboring countries with visa facilitation agreements or hoping to get visa facilitation agreements. Good candidates to watch are Moldova, uh, but also now Turkey. If Turkey, if the, if the readmission agreement and the visa facilitation agreement with Turkey go forward, uh, I can imagine the pressures that the Turks uh, will be faced with uh, in the interest of maintaining visa facilitation agreements. Um, so this issue paper was aimed at the Western Balkan governments first and foremost, but also at the European Commission and at EU member states to 
highlight uh, the problematic practices uh, that were uh, created uh, or that were that came out of these incentives uh, uh, that the EU was 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 creating for these countries. Now, it's primarily, but not only, Roma that have been affected uh, by these measures. Uh, but it's clear that the Roma is a vast majority of people. But the issue of Roma integration is a, is a fraught, uh, Roma migration is a fraught one, uh, not only from non-member states, but from within the EU, as we know from Bulgaria and Romania as well. When you have political and media discourse talking about bombs and gypsy hordes and, and benefit tourists um, and so on. So it is not just a problem between the EU and its neighboring countries, but it's a problem within the EU, and it's a serious human rights issue. And I think this, the whole discourse of benefit tourists, benefit uh, uh, migrants, um, is a very insidious one. A very insidious one that uh, lay behind also the recent Swiss referendum uh, to introduce migration quotas for people from EU countries. Um, and this was preceded by the decision not to lift. Uh, restrictions on Romanian and Bulgarian citizens, um, and the Swiss vote echoed very strongly uh, throughout Europe. You see how it was picked up in France, in Austria, in the Netherlands by the right-wing populist parties, and I have a feeling if the Swiss are allowed to get away with it, uh, or perceived to be getting, getting away with it, uh, that this will become a major platform for right-wing populists elsewhere in Europe. Um, the and this, of course, flies, the, the whole, all this talk about benefits, tourism, and so on, flies in the face of so much research that has been done in the UK, in Sweden, and elsewhere, that shows uh, that the fiscal consequences of migration, especially from the new, new EU member states, have been quite positive. Um, and uh, today, I just noted in the BBC and in, in the Guardian, there was a report on, on a blocked government report uh, suggesting that uh, that the impact of migrant workers on British workers was much less than claimed, but this report has not been made public because it runs completely counter to, the, to what the government has been saying. Uh, also an interesting story in the Financial Times about the contribution of immigrant entrepreneurs to creating employment, uh, to job creation, uh, has been quite significant. 14% of all jobs apparently are created by immigrant entrepreneurs. And this, of course, flies in the face of this discourse. Uh, it doesn't seem to have a, a significant impact on it. Um, but I think that this is, these discussions and research and data uh, will become more and more significant um, in the coming months and years when we discuss uh, this very fraught issue of, of, of benefits and, and social, uh, very social, access to very social welfare provisions for migrants. Now, migration is one issue, and I would like to say that asylum and, and refugee policy is related, but still a distinct issue. I often say it's possible to be, uh, to say we don't want migration, uh, but we will, we will fulfill our obligations under the refugee conventions. There are some countries that do this. Mostly, it's uh, racists saying we won't do, we won't do either, and they can conflate the two. Uh, but I think legally, it's a very different ballgame. Um, because even countries with very strict migration policies have, might have uh, obligations under the Refugee Convention. Uh, I, uh, in my view, there is, we are sleepwalking through one of the biggest refugee crises to have faced Europe uh, in more than 20 years, uh, the Syrian refugee crisis. And there's an incredible amount of denial about the scale of this crisis and about Europe's responsibilities uh, towards uh, the people seeking protection. Uh, the UN has called it the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world today. 
Um, and in, uh, I would argue that it is the biggest refugee, the single biggest refugee crisis uh, on Europe's doorstep that Europe has faced in, in, uh, since the ex-Yugoslav wars. Um, in last year, I began to encounter Syrian refugees everywhere I went, in the most unlikely places. I would meet them in Greek police stations, where they were detained for a long period of time, and I would ask the minister, why are you detaining Syrians? What are you plan on deporting them? What is, it, what is the point of detaining these people? Uh, in Armenia, Armenia has 11,000 Syrian Armenian refugees. Uh, they are now some of them are living in accommodation centers that used to be inhabited by uh, Armenians who fled during the Armenian-Azerbaijan war. Uh, many of them have relatives there. Many of them went there initially to see, to scout out the situation, and had to stay because the fighting in Syria grew worse. And now you have more than 11,000 uh, Syrian Armenians in Armenia who have been very welcomed, uh, but who consider that Armenia is, that Armenia is quite a poor place compared to how they were living in Syria. Uh, it's quite interesting, actually. In Serbia, I would meet them in Serbian forests surrounding refugee reception centers. I went with the Serbian ombudsman a couple of months ago he wanted to use my presence to draw awareness and draw, uh, to draw attention to this problem. Serbia sees itself as a country of transit, not a country of destination, which means they have no procedures. Uh, they recognized three, three refugees in the last three years. They have two small facilities with a total capacity of a little over 400 people, and they have thousands of people wandering around trying to make their way elsewhere in Europe. Um, and in this one facility that I visited, the conditions were fine, about 210 people uh, living in the facility, but outside of the facility there were another 250 living in huts and tents, <coughs> breaking, breaking into, you know, trespassing on, on the locals' property, and there was a time bomb waiting to happen, and the ombudsman wanted to use my presence to kind of push the authorities to do more, um, and eventually it, it, they did. Uh, but I also encountered Syrian refugees in Denmark, uh, some of whom had arrived with their families. How did they get all the way up to Denmark? And I asked the, the head of the refugee agency, and he said, well, the most common route is they hop on an easy jet flight in Milan. For 20 euros, <coughs> the Italian authorities look the other way, and they arrive. Uh, and and the uh, tunnel vision on the part of uh, the Italians who are happy to see people move on. Um, so much for Dublin trips. <laughs> um, so what I decided to do was uh, to follow the route that many Syrian refugees take. In December, I went to, I started in uh, in Turkey, in Hatay, uh, and then went on to Bulgaria, which many of the Syrians I met called the new door to Europe, uh, and then on to Germany, where many would like to uh, end up if they could make it there. Uh, and Turkey uh, was, it's quite striking, but Turkey uh, is, in the Council of Europe, often criticized for various human rights issues, for freedom of expression. Right now, they have huge problems with the uh, efforts to curtail the independence of the judiciary, with efforts to uh, regulate the internet, with police violence uh, after the Gezi events, and I, I wrote a very critical report about police violence, but on refugees, and particularly on Syrian refugees, Turkey is a human rights hero. Uh, they have received more than a million uh, Syrian refugees, and been incredibly generous uh, in providing them uh, not only with uh, housing and lodging, but also education uh, and other kinds of support. 210,000 Syrian refugees live in a network of camps. Uh, these camps, I went to two of them. One of them 
three kilometers from the Syrian border. Uh, if you're interested, on my webpage there's a little video blog of this, uh, of my trip. Um, and it was quite striking. Camps are absolutely full of children. Half of, more than half of all Syrian refugees are children, and this is often forgotten when people start talking about the Islamists and the jihadis and so on and so forth. Uh, but they are children. Uh, Syrians have big families. Um, and 210,000 people in camps, close to 800,000 living in cities, with friends, relatives, uh, living off savings. Uh, free medical care to everybody <coughs> in the camps and outside the camps. Uh, education for more than 25,000 children. A monetary allowance for everybody living in the camps to the tune of about 42 euros per person. Um, and Turkey has done this largely by itself. Uh, Saudi Arabia gave them $50 million, uh, but otherwise the international community has not been very forthcoming with aid. Last year, the UNHCR uh, regional support plan for uh, Turkey was funded to a tune of one-third. Uh, so they, are, they feel neglected, abandoned, uh, and taking on the burden by themselves. Um, Bulgaria was completely unprepared for the influx of refugees uh, and asylum seekers. After the land border between uh, Turkey and Greece was strengthened, uh, that was the immediate route that many people went to. So you had a large number of people all of a sudden showing up in Bulgaria. The authorities were completely unprepared, very uh, not used to seeing themselves as a destination country or even a, a significant transit country. The, one of the reception facilities I visited had uh, 700 people and one staff member. So it was a commandant, as he was called, uh, confronted with 700 people saying, it's you and us, there's nobody else who's going to help us. So we have to figure out a way to make this work. No state uh, assistance in terms of food, no state assistance in terms of education, all provided by NGOs. And uh, so uh, an absolute disaster. Uh, and not only that, but a growing uh, racist movement in society, a lot of racist attacks against uh, refugees and asylum seekers, um, and growing efforts to push people back into Turkey. So one of my key messages at the end of the message was, please no Dublin returns to Bulgaria for the time being. They're not ready. Uh, this is one of the few countries in Europe where UNHCR is active in the European Union. Uh, UNHCR tends not to work in EU countries, but they, are, they have, are giving assistance, both financial assistance and other kinds of assistance to Bulgaria right now. And apparently the EU's financial procedures for assistance to member states on refugee issues were uh, put into action over time and worked faster than they've ever worked before uh, to give uh, the Bulgarian uh, authorities money to deal with this, to hire new people, to create facilities and so on. So they're slowly getting their act together. Uh, but they have a way, ways to go. Uh, Germany uh, is probably the country with the most generous, uh, the most generous uh, within the EU toward, towards uh, the Syrian refugees. They have accepted 10,000 uh, persons through humanitarian resettlement. Uh, all the other EU countries have accepted some. Some have accepted 20, 30, some several hundred, and maximum. Uh, and Germany is is accepting 10,000. And the Germans would do more, but they say they don't want to leave everybody so far behind and be the only ones doing it. So they say, if others do more, we will do more. So they were very happy to see me and, and to, uh, to, to hear the message that other European countries should do more. 
Uh, another 18,000 have found their way to Germany. I met some who had been in Bulgaria, who had been in detention in Bulgaria, and who feared being returned to Bulgaria from Germany. Uh, but others found their way through various other routes. Uh, Sweden is the other good news story within the EU. More than 21,000 uh, Syrian refugees, and they have given them all permanent residence uh, on the assumption, on, I think the very sound assumption that the conflict in Syria is not going to be over soon. So, uh, but Germany and Sweden alone account for more than half of all uh, Syrian refugees within the EU. So it's clear that other countries have to do more, uh, including, uh, including the UK, including countries like France. France, with President Hollande, made a big gesture saying, we will receive 300 Syrian refugees. <laughs> and to be honest, it's a bit pathetic when you look at what, the, what Turkey is doing and what Germany is doing with countries like France and UK and others. Uh, cannot uh, do more. Uh, because clearly much more, much more needs, needs to be done. Um, and the sad thing is that other countries in Europe, not only in the European Union, but uh, uh, in broader Europe, uh, are not only participating in humanitarian, they're not participating in humanitarian resettlement programs, um, but some of them have incredibly low recognition rates of almost zero. Uh, Cyprus is a good example zero recognition rate of, of, of Syrian refugees. Uh, Spain has incredibly low recognition rates. Serbia, as I mentioned, three refugees recognized in the last three years. Uh, Ukraine, before it imploded, had, uh, had rejected more Syrian refugee applications than they accepted. Uh, Russia has not done, uh, Russia has actually sent people back on planes to Damascus. Uh, so many countries that could do more, uh, at least in terms of recognition, are not doing so. Uh, and in the worst case, of course, you have pushbacks. Pushbacks from Bulgaria to Turkey, pushbacks from Italy to Greece, uh, or into the, into the ocean, pushbacks from Greece to Turkey, uh, and most recently in the news have been pushbacks from Spain, um, especially uh, to Morocco. Now, the UK, uh, as I mentioned before, the one area where the UK has done a good job is in giving money giving money to countries in the region, to Jordan, to, to Lebanon, um, but in terms of reception, is not done a whole lot. Uh, to conclude, uh, from my perspective, there, there are a number of things that, that need to happen in this field. One is we need to undergo a paradigm shift from security, the security paradigm to the human rights paradigm in both immigration and asylum issues. Now, what does this imply? This implies uh, decriminalization of, of migration. Um, on the one hand, when you look at in so many countries, migration itself is treated as a crime. But this is, if it is a crime, it's a crime in which no harm is done to other people, no harm is done to, other, to property, no harm is done to state security. So what kind of a crime is this? Uh, it shouldn't be a crime. Uh, I think we need to seriously re-examine detention, immigrant detention as a policy. It should be used only as a last resort, uh, never for children, and only with a view to deportation. I've had so many talks with ministers where they say, oh, uh, and, I, and I say, what is the point of detaining these people for six months, a year, a year and a half? Uh, they think it sends a message. It sends a message. Uh, if you look at the st statistics across Europe, after how long a period can you know whether or not you can deport somebody? It's usually a couple of weeks, at most a couple of months. The Dutch Minister of Migration, uh, 
insisted to me that there are still some cases after six months where you can deport people, but those are quite rare. Uh, so you don't need to, to detain people for lengthy periods of time. It not only links migrants in the public mind with criminals, if they're detained, they must have done something wrong. Uh, it's, uh, it's inefficient because it doesn't work with the view to deportation. It's dehumanizing and traumatic uh, for the people concerned. Um, and uh, it's, a waste of, it's a waste of taxpayers' money. Uh, so in addition to this, uh, what's quite striking is you see a growing shift <coughs> in which the legal safeguards that we take for granted um, are being denied uh, migrants and, and asylum seekers. Uh, sometimes it has to do with limits on length of stay in, in reception centers or detention centers. I met in Denmark, there are people in Sandholm Reception Center who have been living there more than 10 years. They cannot be deported, but the government doesn't want to give them leave to stay. So they, and I say, how long are, how long are you willing to support these people? They say, as long as it takes. So there are people, people who are living for more than 10 years in facilities who cannot be deported, uh, who are not given leave to stay to live uh, in society, and the taxpayers are paying for it, uh, which to me seems one of the most absurd policies uh, in the world. Uh, not only that, but you have the lack of legal safeguards in legal proceedings. Um, one issue that I've engaged uh, with France, with the French authorities, has to do with court hearings that are held in administrative detention centers. Pretty difficult to talk about an independent tribunal and, and justice if in the holding facility in Paris, Paris, Charles de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle Airport, you have a court and a detention facility in the same place. Uh, so clearly justice for migrants and asylum seekers looks very different uh, from justice uh, for others. And of course, the policy of building fences and walls uh, is clearly highly ineffective, as everybody who has tried to build them finds out. Uh, the Greeks have found that basically it means that people come across the sea. Uh, the Bulgarians have also discovered that it means that people come across the sea, or they go around the wall, because building a very long wall is very expensive. Uh, in Spain, especially in Melilla and Ceuta, they've discovered that even if you put barbed wire on it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't deter people. Uh, it just deters, it just diverts them to more dangerous routes. Uh, so what's clear is you need regular avenues uh, for migration, and these walls and fences are basically a waste of money. Regarding Syria, I think this crisis is not going to go anywhere, uh, and that we need uh, to recognize that Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, this, they cannot cope with the huge influx of people uh, who have left Syria, and the situation will get worse over the next year. The situation will get worse because you have large numbers of Syrians living uh, in camps right across the border from Turkey inside Syria, where they, where they at least feel safe from Syrian bombardments because uh, the Syrian uh, Air Force will not come close enough to the Turkish border because they'll get shot down. So at least they're living there. But the Turks are no longer have a completely open border policy uh, to them. But the situation is getting more desperate, and there are a lot of people waiting on the border uh, and trying to cross over through, uh, through various means. But another reason why the situation will become worse is because the people living in the cities in Turkey are running out of money. They thought it would be a short-term stay in Turkey. They had their savings, and now they're running out of their savings after a year, two years, and uh, they will be desperate. 
they will be desperate, which means they will turn to the Turkish authorities, which means that Turkey will be even more burdened, or they will move. And where will they move? To Greece, to Turkey, through Northern Africa, up to Spain, uh, to Cyprus, uh, to Italy, uh, and these countries will be under huge pressure uh, in the coming months and years. Uh, so I have a feeling that it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it's clear that one, another issue that we have to deal with is um, now the racism and xenophobia, uh, which often makes violent forms in some of the countries. Uh, did a lot of work on this in Greece, uh, but Bulgaria, I think, is also a, a serious cause for concern. Uh, every country where you have a lack of integration policies um, is a fertile ground for racist movements. And this is what I saw in Italy as well. In Italy, Italy UNHCR is thrilled with Italy because they're very good at getting status. Uh, UNHCR participates in status proceedings, and they're very happy with the quality of the proceedings. And then very often they do nothing. It depends on the area of Italy. But one of the most striking places I visited in Italy was a place called Salam Palace, an abandoned university building uh, in Rome squatted by 700 refugees. <clears throat> One toilet for, two, for 250 people, uh, no utilities, no, uh, no, for a while the local authorities turned off electricity, and these people are trying to survive. And many of them have status, either refugee status or subsidiary protection, and they're told, make your way. And many of them have tried to leave and go to other countries, and they're sent back. Um, and this is a, a recipe for disaster. This is what feeds into racist uh, movements. So <clears throat> clearly, um, the situation uh, in this realm, I'm very concerned about the European Parliament elections and the way issues pertaining to migration, racism, and asylum are going to play out. Uh, and in, in the context of the Syrian refugee crisis, I think we're in through some very, very tough months and, and, and at least a very tough year. So, from my perspective, it's clear that uh, we need to refocus on human rights, on the right to seek asylum, the right to leave a country, uh, non-discrimination, and the prohibition on, on collective expulsions and on ill-treatment. Um, but uh, very often, I feel like a voice in the wilderness, but I think it's a, these are things that need to be said over and over again, and uh, in more European countries, uh, the better. So I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs>